0: If you have ever had the privilege of planning a wedding or closing a complicated deal, be that a business or a real estate uh, type of thing, or you are one who's attained or obtained an advanced degree in some field of education, then you are one that understands the level of planning and preparation that goes into attaining something like that. The attention to detail Um, that you have to give if you want to accomplish something of great value and importance. And as we study the Gospel of Luke together, what we are doing is uncovering God's plan to redeem fallen man through the person of his son, Jesus. And that is the something of greatest value and greatest importance uh, in, in, in all of existence. And what we're coming to discover in these early chapters of Luke's testimony is the great level of preparation and planning that went into bringing forth Jesus Christ into the world. We saw that God first planted a nation a couple of thousand years before Jesus would even come into the world. The nation through whom he would come was placed there by God. Then the family was selected that uh, it would come through the Davidic line. He would be a descendant of King David. And then we saw that the times and the political structure of empires was all shaped and fashioned by God as he prepared the way to send his son into the world. And then he prepared the woman, Mary, that would be the mother of his son and would raise him up in his earthly uh, existence. And then the forerunner that would go before him, the person of John the Baptist that we studied last week. And what is coming into the forefront as we consider all of these things is just the incredible detail that God um, went to in order to bring all of this This isn't something that he just did on the fly or that he just said, well, it's just going to happen. And here's Jesus. Now he's just all of a sudden on the scene. But God went to great lengths to lay the groundwork for all of that so that it would be done in such a perfect uh, fashion. And it had to be. And so last week, what we looked at in the person of John the Baptist was the preparation of the nation for the ministry of Messiah. That's what John the Baptist was sent to do. He was to prepare them so that when Messiah would come, they would be ready to receive him for who he was. And so tonight, as we see now Jesus coming through the ministry of John, we see the final preparation of Messiah for his ministry to the nation. So John the Baptist, the preparation of the nation for the ministry of Messiah, and then tonight, the final preparation of the Messiah for his ministry to the nation. Now, we understand that though all things have been in preparation from the beginning, like, like I shared a moment ago, and though Jesus has been on kind of the, the wheel, God's potter wheel, if you would, for the past 30 years as he's waiting for this time to be launched forward, that we'll see three things tonight, that really are the final yet critical components to his preparation before his presentation to the nation. And those are his baptism when he would come to John the Baptist to be baptized. And then his pedigree that's given to us through the genealogy that Luke records, uh, tracing the lineage of Jesus and highlighting his qualification to be who he was indeed to be. And then finally, the temptation of Christ uh, that was accomplished prior to Is then being set forth to the nation. And so Jesus, with these final things now being prepared to be launched forward to the nation. And so we come to the baptism of Jesus uh, in verse 21 of chapter 3, after concluding the ministry of John the Baptist. And it tells us here, it says that now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying The heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And so if you can imagine the scene, you see John the Baptist in your mind, and he's there by the Jordan River. And there's multitudes of people from Israel that have come from all quarters, way up in the north of Galilee, all the way down to the southern capital region of Jerusalem. There are scribes, there's Pharisees, there's rich, there's poor, there's publicans and soldiers, government workers. All walks of life are there and they're coming to John. And they're receiving his message and they're being baptized. And what Matthew tells us about that time that Luke doesn't tell us is that John at that point, at some point, said to them that there stands one among you whom you do not know. And the gospel seems to indicate that even John wasn't completely sure in knowing who it was because we're told that the Spirit of God told him that the one whom you see the Spirit of God descending, he is the one that would be the Messiah. And somewhere in the midst of all the people coming to John in order to be baptized, Jesus steps forward now out of the crowd and he gets into the water now to be baptized by John the Baptist, who is to be the forerunner of the very Christ that he is now baptizing. And it tells us again in Matthew that when Jesus came to John, that John was hesitant to even put Jesus under the water. He looked at Jesus and somehow knowing who he was and having been familiar with his life, being raised alongside of him and seeing him for all that he was, that he looked at Jesus And when he saw him come into the water, he says, why is it that you come to be baptized of me when I really should be the one who's baptized of you? That as it stands in terms of righteousness and who has more character and who is more upright before God, I don't even hold a candle to who you are. So what are you doing here to be baptized? And I believe that's the question that resonates for each one of us tonight as we look at this text of scripture and we see the son of God coming into the waters of a baptism of repentance. And how is it that someone who is absolutely sinless and pure would have to come into a water and be dunked? And John asks the same questions. Why are you being baptized of me? And why indeed is Jesus being baptized? And the answer to that is not because Jesus needed to have his sins washed away or that in any way he had to uh, attain a righteousness that he didn't already have. But the reason why Jesus was coming is very simply is because he came in part to identify with us. And that in that identification, he was showing us a way wherein we would be reconciled to the Father. And he never calls anyone to go down a road that he himself has not first traveled. And thus, though he didn't need to be baptized, he came to the baptizer because it was necessary that he show the way of salvation to us. And so the baptism of Jesus was done for the sake of him identifying with us and giving to us a pattern that we would one day follow. We're also told here in this passage that Jesus was praying at the time of his baptism. Mark doesn't tell us that, and Matthew doesn't tell us that, but Luke tells us. And it's interesting to, to realize that throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke highlights the prayer life of Jesus more than anyone else. There's no less than eight times throughout Luke's Gospel that it's recorded that Jesus was praying. and He prayed at almost every juncture of his life, and we're told that even here at his baptism... He was in communion and in fellowship with his father uh, during that time. And I find it amazing to realize that, that here's the Son of God, who is the very person of God himself. He's filled with God. He is. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And yet in his humanity and in being the Son of Man that was giving to us an example of what would be, we see him praying at every juncture of his life. And what we find as we look at the life of Jesus is that everything that he was, his source, his satisfaction, where his power came from, the miracles, all that he was and all that he did came as a direct result or reflection of his attachment and his fellowship with his father. A little bit later on in Jesus' ministry, after he's called the 12 apostles to himself. And they've seen him do miracles and they've seen him cleanse lepers and raise the dead and walk on water and multiply loaves and fishes. And they've heard him preach powerful sermons that move multitudes to a place of change and transformation. That when the disciples come to Jesus privately, they never ask him how to do any of those things. They never ask him how to walk on water or how to teach or preach or anything. But what they do ask him twice in the three and a half years that they're with him is they say, Lord, Teach us to pray. And what they realized is that who he was and what he did was a direct result of the fellowship that he had with his father. And they knew that if they would ever have what he had, it would be because they knew who he knew. And thus the example given to us, the Son of God. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray, then how much more do we, you and I, need to be in constant fellowship with our father? It also tells us here that while Jesus was baptized and while he was praying, it says that the heavens were opened and that the Holy Spirit of God descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And it says that he then was empowered by the Spirit. It says that the Spirit came upon him. And here Jesus experiences that upon experience with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man. And there was no point in Jesus' existence that he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit because he was the Holy Spirit. But here we see something happening that hadn't yet happened previously in the life of Jesus, and that is that the Spirit was coming upon his life. The Bible teaches that it is possible for you and I, to have three separate experiences or relationships, if you would, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would say later on that the Spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. And right there you have the first two of those three experiences. The Holy Spirit being with a person and then the Holy Spirit being in a person. And the Holy Spirit being with a person is the part of our experience where God is on the outside of our lives and He's knocking on our hearts trying to gain access inside. It's the still small voice that we hear late at night that says, what's the purpose of life? Why are you here? What's the reason for your existence? Where did the world come from? What's your future going to hold? Where are you going to go when you die? And all of those things that haunt us prior to our coming to Christ. Or when we see a Christian that's living the abundant life prior to our getting saved and we see something about their life and there's a gnawing in our heart because we see that they have something that we don't have. And there's a still small voice somewhere that's saying to us, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. And that is the experience where the Holy Spirit is with a person winning them, wooing them to a place where they will accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Now when a person receives Christ, and they come into that relationship with God, then they enter into the second experience that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. And that is when He moves in them. Jesus said, He's with you, and He shall be in you. And when the Spirit of God comes inside, a person is born again. They're relinked with the person of God that they had been separated from since birth because of sin. Their sins are washed away. They pass from death to life. The lights are on. The peace that passes understanding Floods their heart and their mind as they realize that God is true and the Bible is true and that there is a real heaven and there is a real hell and all these things that were concepts before are now somehow intimately known on the inside and you know that something changed because the Holy Spirit is now in your life. You read the Bible and whereas one time it seemed like you were reading in code and it made no sense. But now you read it and it makes sense and you, you look at the pages of scripture and you say, well, I never saw this before, but now everything I ever heard, it's clicking, it's falling into place. That's the Spirit of God in your life. And now you're in a relationship with God and you're coming to know who He is and you begin to grow in that relationship. But there's a third experience the Bible teaches that every believer is called to have with the Holy Spirit. And that's the upon experience. After Jesus had breathed upon His disciples and said, receive the Holy Ghost, And they were filled with the Holy Ghost. He said to them, now wait until you be endued with power from on high. For he said that the Holy Ghost will come upon you and you will become witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the upon experience is when the Holy Spirit, who is now in your life, And teaching you who God is and how to walk with God now empowers your life to make you a witness for Christ to a lost and dying world. And that's the upon experience. It's empowerment for service. And it's something that God desires that every one of us would have and he's made provision for it and it's ours for the asking when we would simply lay our lives before him and say, God, I want to serve you with my life, but I don't want to do it in the strength of my own flesh. So God, empower me by your spirit. Now, the amazing thing is that we see Jesus right here experiencing that upon. What amazes me is that he did absolutely nothing in his father's name for the first 30 years of his life until he was endued with power from the Holy Ghost. And that's true for you and I as well. You cannot serve God in your flesh and in the strength of your flesh and expect it to bear fruit in your life. It's got to be the power of God's spirit working in you if there's gonna be fruit in your life. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by his spirit that we can bear fruit and bear effect upon this world for his name. And we see Jesus pioneering the way and setting forward the example of what that is early on in his ministry. And so uh, the Holy Spirit comes forward and in this now, Jesus is launched forward into the public eye Almost. So the baptism of Jesus. Then we move into the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm not going to read through all this, but I will read verse 23. It says that Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. And so we don't know the exact age that Jesus was. Luke tells us that he was about 30 years of age at this time, and it says that being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli and then many, many, many verses uh, of names that are very difficult um, to pronounce uh, <laughs> and that really in and of themselves um, don't mean all that much to us. But it's worthy of mentioning a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that he was about 30. And the reason why that's significant is because that was the age at which the priests were released into the ministry. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, that he is the mediator between God and men, the one that joins his hand to God's and then his hand to us and that reunites us. That's the work of a priest and that's who Jesus was. And so it's significant that it was at that age that Jesus began the ministry of his priesthood, reuniting or relinking us to the God that we were separated from. It's also worthy to mention that the genealogy of jesus is listed two times in the bible it's listed here and it's also listed in matthew's gospel but if you ever take the time to read those genealogies you'll notice that they're very different well why why is it that there's two genealogies that are given and and they're not the same as one another well, it's actually very significant and very important matthew gives us the genealogy of joseph which was Jesus's stepfather. Luke gives to us the genealogy of Mary, which was Jesus' real mother or blood mother, if you would. And he gives us both of them. And it's for a very significant reason. Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham, traces it through David and then the kingly line coming through Solomon in the Reign of the Kings, and he brings it down to Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. Mary begins with Jesus. I'm sorry, Luke. Mary didn't write it. Luke. Luke begins with Jesus, and then he goes backwards through Mary, traces it to David, but not through Solomon in the kingly line, but rather through Nathan, another one of David's sons, and then brings it back to Abraham, and Luke brings it all the way to Adam, whereas Matthew stopped at Abraham. So why is this? And here's the reason. It's because prophecy must be fulfilled exactly. I opened the study tonight by talking about all of the preparation that God made in order to bring his son into the world. And since the very beginning, God began to lay down the guidelines for how we would recognize the Messiah when he would come. And so right off the bat, God began to say, you're gonna recognize him because he's gonna come through this line and you'll see this thing take place. And so it started with Adam. He would be a descendant of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, that through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. God giving a messianic prophecy and promise to Eve that the Messiah would be a man, that he would be born into the human race. He'd be the seed of a woman then God calling the family of Abraham and then later on the family of David and God basically narrowing it down and saying, this is how you'll recognize because when the Messiah comes, he will come through this line and through uh, this lineage. And it was important in the prophecy, listen, that Jesus come through the line of David and that he be two things, both David's seed, that he would be a descendant of David genetically, and that he would be through the royal line, that is Solomon on down through as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel that's there. And so he had to be genetically linked to David and he had to be royally linked to David. Now here's where it gets interesting and almost a little bit confusing, but I hope I can clear it up. Satan, from the very beginning, has had an agenda to try to thwart God's plan. Now, Satan hates God, and Satan hates man. And so from the beginning, it's been his purpose to try to foil God's plan to redeem humankind. And so, when it was prophesied that he would come through the seed of the woman, Satan corrupted Cain to the point where he killed Abel. And Satan thought that he had thwarted God's plan, but God had another plan, and Seth was born through whom the seed would ultimately come. A little bit later on, we see the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And God told Isaac that through Jacob shall the promise come. And so Satan incited Esau to try to kill Jacob. He was jealous and angry, trying to undo God's plan, but he wasn't successful. He wasn't able to do it. God preserved and protected Jacob. Once it was determined, or it was already determined it would come through their line, God stirred up the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, To kill all the male children, hoping that he could wipe out the Hebrew bloodline and thereby stop the Messiah from coming into the world. But Moses was miraculously spared, and then the rest of the nation was later delivered from Egypt. And time after time, Satan made attempts to do it. Athaliah, the queen, tried to wipe out all of the royal lineage, but one baby was spared, Joash. And the line went on. When the children of Israel were in captivity, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, tried to wipe out all of the Jewish people completely. But God raised up Esther and Mordecai and he saved them. And Satan was never able to come through. But there was one thing that Satan did do. He so corrupted the descendants of David, the kingly line, that by the time Jeconiah, who's listed in the genealogy in Matthew, by the time he was reigning, God made a declaration and he placed a curse upon the descendants of Jeconiah. And he said, not one of your descendants will ever reign upon the throne of Israel. And Satan thought that he had had victory at that point. Now it's impossible for God to keep his promise because the line of the kings has been cursed. Well, God had a plan. He knew exactly how he was going to get around that, is that Jesus wouldn't be the blood descendant of Joseph but that Jesus would be his stepson. But because he was his legal stepfather, it gave Jesus the legal right to be a king because he was the stepson of Joseph, who was a descendant of David through Solomon. But he wasn't a genetic son of David, thereby the curse that was laid upon Jeconiah was not applied to Jesus Christ. He came from a virgin, and thus his mother Mary, could also be traced back to David and then thus to Abraham and Adam. But it would be through Nathan and not through the line of the kings. And thus Jesus would be linked to David both genetically through Mary and royally through Joseph, even though he didn't have the blood of Joseph in him. And thus God again thwarts the plan of Satan. And so the genealogy is laid out, and here's why it's laid out, is because it's important that Jesus be the exact fulfillment of all that the Bible says he would be. And the only way that was possible is for Jesus to be born of a virgin who's married to a descendant of David through Solomon. And that's exactly what Jesus was. And thus the pedigree of Jesus is laid out for us in the genealogy here that we might see and know that he is qualified to be indeed who God uh, set him forth to be. The last verse of chapter three is significant. It says, uh, as he just gives the tail end of that genealogy in verse 38, it says that he was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And the idea is there that Adam was the direct result of the creation of God. And the reason why I point that out and the reason why it's significant is because there is a relationship between Adam and Jesus. Adam was the first man and when he was put upon the earth, he was created without sin. Meaning that he was perfect. He was born in fellowship with God. But then he had to undergo a testing that we know he ultimately failed. And in Adam's failure to resist the temptation, he brought sin upon the human race. And that's the condition that all of us find ourselves in here tonight. That's why we need a savior, because of the sinful condition. Had Adam passed that test, and of course he never would have, and God knew he never would have because it was his plan, Jesus was plan A from the very beginning. But had he done it, then you and I would have no need of redemption because we wouldn't have inherited a sinful nature. But Adam, who was the direct creation of God, brought a curse upon the blood that he would then pass on to succeeding generations. That's us. So Jesus, when he came into the world, he also was the son of God, and now he will undergo a similar type of temptation or testing that he will have to pass and not give in to sin in order to qualify to be the redeemer of mankind. And thus where Adam failed, now Jesus has to pass. And so as we come to chapter four, we begin looking at this temptation and this testing. And this is number three of the things that needed to be done before Jesus could be presented to the nation and to the world as their Messiah. And so chapter four is now the temptation of Christ. And we read at the beginning, verse one, it says this. It says that Jesus... Now being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, afterward he was hungry. And so Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, He's now filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit and the very first thing that happens as he leaves those waters and obviously leaving those people in wonder at the things that they had just heard and seen. Jesus now goes into a time of isolation led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness in order now to be tempted or tested. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, it says this, it says, the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold but the Lord tries the hearts. And the idea behind the finding pot is that you would use it to test the value of a precious metal. That if it could stand up to the fire, then it really held the value that its appearance showed that it had. And so God tests the heart in the same way. Jesus has to be set forth as the Messiah, and he has to be perfect. But that perfection has to be tested. Can he stand up? to what his appearance is and what he is meant to be. How could we know if he's not tested? And thus Jesus now goes into a time of temptation. And you say, well, why is that? Why does Jesus, who is God and who is sinless, why does he need to be tempted, tested? Why? First of all, he does it to identify. I shared with you earlier that he never walks, calls us to walk a path that he won't personally walk himself. And he knows that we're going to go through temptation, that we're going to be tried, that we're going to be faced with choices and issues and crossroads and things that we're going to have to navigate our way through in circumstances of life. And so he went through those very things to identify with us so that we'd be able to feel the the, the feeling or he would feel the feeling that we feel when we do it. It's interesting, um, my my son Rocky, who um, he's homeschooled so I really don't know what grade he's in because you know, he's kind of like fifth grade math, sixth grade this, you know, he's, he's kind of in that fifth, sixth, seventh grade region in, in the various things uh, that he's going through. But it's interesting to, to, to walk through his mathematical advancement with him, because as I do it, I remember my own struggles. And I remember being that age and having to, you know, learn complicated multiplication problems and compound problems where you're dividing and then multiplying big numbers and solving word problems. And and, and I see the tears that well up in his eyes while he's straining to try to figure out how to do these things and remember all the steps. And on the inside, I smile a little bit because I remember those days. I remember what it was like to be there. I remember crumpling up pieces of paper and slamming my fist on the desk when I got problems wrong, you know, and I'm now seeing him go through that and I'm able to say, hey, you're going to make it through this. I know you're going to get through it because I've been there. And that's exactly part of the reason why Jesus went through what he went through in the temptation, because he would be able to say, listen, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel the weight of that temptation and I also know how to overcome and you can do it. And so he did it to identify. He also did it, and this is important, he did it to qualify. And that has really two facets to it. First of all, he had to be sinless and that sinlessness had to be tested. In order for him to redeem us and to bring us out of the category of sin and into the category of righteousness, he had to be absolutely sinless Having been tested in every way, like we are tested. And so he had to be tempted in order to qualify. But the other facet of that qualification is that he's about to be launched into a public ministry. He's about to be set forth as a representation of God to the nation of Israel and also to the world. And before God will give approval to his being set forward as that representation, He must first also be tested. And this temptation that Jesus is going through here, I think has more to do with that than it does to do with the qualification to save us. Because we're gonna see at the end of the passage that he's not done being tempted just because he makes it through this 40 days. Don't you wish you could do that? Hey, 40 days of temptation and I'm done. Never have to face temptation again. That's not true, is it? And it wasn't true for Jesus either. This temptation had a very specific purpose and that he's about to be released to represent. And before that happens, he must pass the test. And perhaps that will speak to some of us a little bit later on as we consider our own desire to be used by God uh, in this life. Um, And then, of course, the third uh, reason why Jesus had to be tested is because he does know that we're going to be tested and he gives to us in this experience a method and a way wherein we can handle temptation as well. See, it isn't that he just sets us forth into the test without the proper tools, but here he shows us how we can defeat the temptations that come to us as well. Uh, It's interesting to realize when this temptation came to Jesus. It came to him right after he was baptized. It came after a mountaintop experience He had just heard the voice of God speak from heaven and the Holy Ghost came upon him. And it's on the heels of that experience that now he's going to face the greatest test and temptation of his life. I don't know, can you relate to that? Isn't it amazing how sometimes after the greatest breakthroughs that we have with God, or sometimes the times where God reaches the deepest into our hearts and lives, or maybe right after a church service that's so impacting, and we leave there and it seems that it's right after that that the strongest temptations can come against us and hit us. Sometimes we're vulnerable after a spiritual high to be knocked down and brought spiritually low. We see Jesus experiencing that here. It's a time to be on guard. We also notice that he's in, for this temptation, a time of total isolation. There's nobody else with him. He hasn't called any of the 12 apostles yet. There's no disciples as yet to follow him within his ministry. He has to do this all by himself. And he's in isolation when the temptation comes. Do you find that like I do? That it's when we're alone that we can be the most vulnerable? The times when there's no other brothers or sisters around us or no other people, but it's when we're isolated or a season of isolation within our life that the temptation can feel the strongest. And that's why the Bible says, God said in the beginning that it isn't good for man to be alone. It's important for us to be surrounded with fellowship, with brothers and sisters to encourage us, to remind us of God's love and God's ways and God's light within our life. But Jesus was tempted while in isolation. It's a vulnerable place for us. Thirdly, we notice that Jesus was tempted or tested during a time of absolute physical exhaustion. We're told that he fasted for 40 days that he did eat nothing during that time and afterwards he was hungry, that he was at a point where he was completely exasperated and he had nothing left of his own resources uh, or physical strength at that time. It's amazing, isn't it, what can happen to us when we find ourselves exhausted? After working, you know, triple shifts or double shifts or seven straight days or 14 straight days of work or, you know, we are working and at the same time we're trying to move and we're also trying to keep the family together and it's those times when we're physically exhausted that we can find ourselves vulnerable to the times of temptation. Uh, and we see that here, that it was when he was weakest physically and emotionally and spiritually that that's when Satan made his strongest move uh, against him. And then finally, when did this temptation take place? Is It took place, and listen carefully, it took place just before the very purpose of his earthly life was about to begin. God has a purpose for every one of us. He didn't save us just so that we could sing Christian songs and attend Bible studies and call ourselves Christians. He's made every one of us unique and He's given every one of us a calling and He's placed a burden in us and He's he's doing something in our lives so that He can do something through our lives that no one else can do other than us. But while we're waiting for those days to come, God is preparing us and there's going to come a day When the purpose for our existence is going to meet the timing of God's plan. And it's at that point that our lives are going to begin to bear fruit. But know this that before God will launch us into a place where we're going to bear fruit for His name, there will be a testing. And we must pass the test. And thus, Jesus, before He is put forward into this public scene, He is tempted. Notice that He's tempted by the devil. It says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for these 40 days. There are many people, even in churches today, that don't believe in a literal devil. That he's just a figment, or that he's just an imaginary thing, or that he is just kind of like this spirit of, you know, invisible, uh, dead spirit of darkness that just kind of exists, but it isn't really a person or a personality. The Bible knows nothing of that. But the Bible teaches that there is an adversary, an enemy of our faith, who is wise, who has a kingdom, and who is organized, and who studies what he does, who strategizes and makes plans, and that he seeks to kill, to steal, and destroy. And the first thing an enemy, any enemy of ours, would love is if we would not believe that they exist. To bury our head in the sand and to think, well, there is no enemy. That enemy is not there. He's already won half the battle, because how can you defend against someone you don't believe in? There is a real devil. And we see him here going head to head with the son of God himself. But notice also that it tells us that he was tempted by the devil, but that he was led of the spirit into that time of temptation. Now that fascinates me because what that tells me is that Satan doesn't just act autonomously or independently of God, but that Jesus is in the very will of God during this time of temptation, and it's actually the hand of God that's bringing this temptation upon his life. And that gives me a little bit of a chill, but it also gives me a little bit of comfort. It's a chill because, wow, God, would you actually employ the devil to do something within my life? The answer is yes. The devil works for God, and God will use the devil to accomplish his purposes within our lives, whether that's testing or whether that's trial. We see that very clearly, vividly illustrated in the book of Job and through the experiences that he had. But it comforts me because it tells me that the devil is not the counterpart of God. It's not that we have God who's the king of God's kingdom and Satan is the king of the kingdom of darkness and whatever kingdom is stronger, that king has more power. No, no. The Bible says that he, our God, sits far above all principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. That means that Satan doesn't hold a candle in terms of power to God. He's a created being. He's a fallen angel and he can only do what God allows him to do. And thus God leads the son of God at this point into the wilderness to be tempted uh, for that season that he's in. And whatever season that we find ourselves in, no matter what, God is sovereign over it. that means that if you're being tested here today or tempted, God is the author of that temptation ultimately. It's not the devil. He might be the agent that God is using, but God is over it. If you're in a trial here tonight and you're facing suffering, tribulation, don't blame the devil. You go to God and you say, God, what is the story with what's going on in my life right now? Because God never yields territory to the devil. He is sovereign over our lives and over all things. And so wrestle with that in your own mind. Anyways, what are the temptations? What did he go through? It tells us there in verse, uh, I'm gonna read verse two again. It says that in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, afterward, he hungered. And the devil said unto him, if you be the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The first temptation that comes to Jesus from the devil, the devil comes to him in this place of absolute hunger. And he says, if you are the son of God, then one of these stones that's sitting out here in this isolated barren wilderness that you're in right now, turn it into a loaf of bread and satisfy the craving and the hunger that you're feeling from inside. He's asking Jesus to use his God-given power and God-given authority to meet the physical needs that he has. Now understand that there is nothing wrong with bread. You can't find any verse in the Bible or any principle anywhere where bread is sin. Where it's a sin for a man to eat. Because we were made to eat. That's one of the faculties and institutions wherein our bodies exist and continue It's through the feeding of the hunger so there's no problem with bread and there's no problem if you have the power to turn stones into bread there's no problem with turning stones into bread and we know that because very soon in fact it'll just be a couple of weeks after this experience a couple of days really that Jesus is going to turn water into wine. He's going to change one compound into something of a completely different makeup altogether. And it's not sin when he does it then. So it's not sin to eat bread and it's not sin to turn one substance into another for the sake of something that's going to go into the mouth. We see that in the Bible. So how is this even a temptation that's being placed upon Jesus right now? Here's the issue. Is that God is the one that has led Jesus into this place And this fast for this purpose of being tested. And that it is not the will of God yet for Jesus to break the fast. And so the sin is not the bread or the changing of the stone. The sin would be to step outside of a God ordained fast because he simply in his own mind wants to eat something because he's hungry at this time. And so thus for Jesus to eat would be to step outside of the will for the sake of satisfying the appetites of the body. And that is the temptation that Jesus is facing here, is to leave the will of God for my life in order to satisfy the drives and the desires of my body. And Jesus' response to that temptation is that he quotes a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So he quotes a verse. And in quoting that verse, what he implies is that man's sustenance does not rest only with the meeting of his physical needs, but also with the spiritual and the invisible needs that he has. That that's the greater drive or the more important drive and to step outside of the will of God in order to satisfy the body. On the end of that, it's going to leave you with a greater hunger than you had in the first place. We are created as three-part beings. We are body and we are soul And we are spirit. And it's the spirit of man that's intended to be linked with God, satisfying the soul. And the body is to be just an expression or a medium whereby we relate to one another and we relate to the physical world. But to satisfy the needs of the body at the expense of the soul and the spirit is to separate us from the source of our life. It would be like trying to infuse the leaf of a tree with sap from the outside of its cells. You could maybe satisfy it for a moment, but ultimately it's going to die because you cut it off from the source. And so for a human being to leave a place of a relationship, a right relationship with God in order to satisfy a body need, in the end, though they might be temporarily satisfied by meeting that need, it's going to be a loss in the long run. And Jesus knows that the greater need is the spiritual need. And to sacrifice that for a physical need is a net loss. Later on, Jesus would say, John chapter 4, verse 34, he would say that my food is to do the will of him that sent me. He knew that there was greater satisfaction in being in the will of God than there was in experiencing things in his flesh. The disciples said, here, eat. And Jesus said, I'm not even hungry anymore. I'm in the center of God's will and that satisfies me primarily and fundamentally. And here's the amazing thing is that Satan had no answer for Jesus. The temptation was over. It was completed. It was already won. Understand that when a person is born again and they go through a salvation experience, something changes inside. The Bible says that they immediately, you and I, we immediately become eternal beings. It says that we pass from death to life. Meaning the end of our life changes from a period to a comma. That when we breathe our last in this world, we simply breathe our first in the next. And we are at that moment that we get saved, we become eternal beings and we become citizens of the highest kingdom that exists. But that kingdom is invisible for us for now. And so here's the confusing thing and the problem with that. Getting saved. Eternal beings citizens of the highest kingdom here's the problem is that when you go to work tomorrow your world is going to look exactly the same as it did the day before you're going to have the same job the same routine the same boss you're going to have to deal with the same annoying people everything in the outward of your life is going to look exactly the same as it did before you gave your life to jesus christ but the truth about your identity and who you are is totally different You're no longer a citizen of a fallen world. You now have a father who has pledged his promise upon your life that there's a future and a hope and a place and a plan. And he is now doing something in your life in order to make you into the image of Christ and bring you to a place where you can bear fruit for his name. He's preparing and shaping you and he's using your daily lives to prepare you. And there is always a relationship between what we are doing now in our lives and what God is going to do with our lives later on. The two things are always linked together. Peter was a fisherman. That was his daily mundane. But Jesus called him and he said, from now on you will catch men. He was catching fish. Now you will catch men. There was a relationship between the daily and then the eternal. We see Matthew writing at the receipt of taxes, a recorder. God says, Matthew, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to call you. And what he was learning to do in keeping records and recording and accounting, he then was able to do as he chronicled the life of Jesus. What he had been doing translated into God's plan for his future. We see that all the way, all throughout the Bible. We see Luke was a scholar and a doctor that God then used to pen the detailed and specific gospel that we're reading before us. We read of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold as a slave into Egypt. He was a servant in Potiphar's house. But he learned as a servant of Potiphar's house how to administrate and run a household, how to run a private entity, how to make it profitable. Then he was betrayed and put into a prison. And in the prison, he learned how to run a government entity, and he learned the criminal mind, and he learned how to discern what was going on behind people's words and behind their faces. And he learned how a kingdom is run and what takes place in the politics of all of that. And all of that was preparing him for the time when he would become the prime minister and the one that would save a whole nation by a dream that God gave him wherein seven years of food would be saved and then distributed during seven years of famine. But do you see how what he had been doing in the daily of his life, in the grind of the prison in the house, translated into what God was ultimately going to do with him when he came into his purpose. Now, lay that over our lives, you and I sitting here. We get saved and we go back to work the next day. And we say, what in the world is the point of this? I'm dealing with the same people and the same garbage. And I hate this. God, what (coughs) good could ever come out of the life that I'm in right now? What could you possibly be doing? I'm just trapped in this job and I can't see beyond it. And when we have that mentality, we fall into a place where we're vulnerable for this type of temptation. You're a son or daughter of God. You gave your life to Jesus Christ. Look what he, he, he's not providing for you. Look, you're here and you're hungry. You're, you don't know your right hand from your left in this thing. You don't see a finish line. You never know where you're going with all of this. And you begin to listen to that. And you say, you know what? Yeah, you know what? I have an excuse. I have a right to step outside of the will of God. I have a right to stop on the way home and pick up a six pack or to smoke up or whatever. I, I have a right to do it because God certainly isn't showing up within my life. Listen, look at it the other way. Where you are today is a part of preparation for where you will be tomorrow. How does that change what you're doing today? It gives me a sense of the supernatural and what I'm doing in my day-to-day life. God, I don't see the outcome. I don't know how this is going to work out in the end, but I trust and believe in what you say in your word that you didn't call anyone without a purpose. And thus, you're going to use what I'm going through today to translate into making me fruitful tomorrow. And in that, now the temptation comes. And you can look at it and you say, This is costing me so much to go through the grind of this life. I would be a fool to trade the tuition I'm paying today going through these trials and difficulties and throw it all away for a moment of pleasure. Wherein the reality of the situation is that God is preparing me for something more than what I'm doing right now. And I'm not gonna give it up. Which one of us would pay our own way to go to a university and then purposely flunk the exam. That's what it's like to trade the will of God for a temporary moment of satisfaction. And thus we see Jesus in this. And before he had to be released, he had to be obedient in the area of his appetites and his desire and to have control over those things. One month from now in Jesus' ministry, he's gonna be standing in the temple court. And when he stands in that temple court, He's going to see something that is so offensive to the heart of God, it's going to make his blood boil. But is he at that point going to remain silent and say nothing for the sake of the comfort that that will bring? Or will he have the boldness to overturn the tables and make a scene though it will cost him greatly? It's important that he be willing to do what needs to be done. And thus the temptation is, will you stand in the will of God over your own comfort? And Jesus passes the test. The second temptation that comes to him, we have in verse five, and it says that the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give you and all the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If you therefore, here's the temptation, will worship me, all will be thine. Now there is absolutely an element of the supernatural in this because it tells us that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time. Now that is impossible from any physical point on the planet to be able to see all of that. So there's something extra spiritual going on here. We don't know how far back into history those kingdoms went or how far into the future. Did he see ancient Babylon? Did he see the United States of America? Did he see the kingdoms of all ages? We don't know, but he sees something and he sees something glorious and grand. And Satan then makes a preposterous claim. He says, all of the power and the glory of these kingdoms has been given to me and I can give it to whosoever I will. Now that reveals something about what took place in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When Adam sinned, he forfeited control of the planet into the hand of Satan. And Jesus didn't argue and say, no, you don't. Satan does hold all the cards in the world that we live in. He controls the course of things. Of course, we know that he's God's puppet. But he has the deed at this point until Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus takes it back. And it goes back to its rightful place in the hand of God. But we learned that part of Satan's usurping was that he became the captain of the authority in the kingdoms of this world. We also learned something about the redemption of Jesus Christ, is that he came to redeem that power that Satan had to take it back. And so here's the temptation. You ready? It's compromise and conquer. That's the temptation. See, Jesus came to redeem the world and to obtain the kingdoms back into his hands. But he came to do it in a very specific way. And Satan is offering him the easy street here. He's saying, hey, just bow down, worship me, and all will be yours. No cross, no suffering, no thorns, no flagellum, no bruise, nothing, no blood. Just bow down, worship me, and it's all yours. Now, that would be a powerful temptation for some of us, wouldn't it? To know that right now, in secret, I could just bow the knee real quick and it's all over. And I don't have to do any of that and I can say mission accomplished. Here's the problem. It's a lie. See, Satan promised the power and the glory of those kingdoms. But do you know what he didn't mention? The souls. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. If Jesus doesn't spill his blood, even if he holds the deed to the world, he didn't accomplish his mission. And furthermore, the Bible says that whoever you yield yourselves as a servant to obey, his servants you are who you obey. And therefore, if Jesus worships and serves Satan, even if it's for a minute, he forever ranks under him in prominence. And thus Satan can yield all that he wants to to Jesus at the end of the day, Jesus has been placed under the subjection of Satan, just like Adam was. It's a lie. It can't be done. So how does Jesus fight the temptation? He says, it is written, verse eight, get thee, or he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shall you serve. To worship God and to serve God is to bring freedom upon a life. To do anything else and to serve anything else is to bring bondage upon that life. And if you or I seek to serve Satan in an attempt to try to find an easier way to get to the finish line, no matter what you have for the rest of your life, it will be a burdensome, grinding life that you'll live. Because Satan can only bring theft and destruction and death. That's what he does. And we see it, don't we? I mean, you look around and what's going on in the industry and you see what's going on with people that are in an industry where they've made it. And you see the kind of life that they live and the quality of that life and what it costs. If God says there's a one way to do something, then that means there's only one way to do something and anything else is a counterfeit and it's a lie. And it says then the third temptation, it says that he brought him to Jerusalem and he set him on a pinnacle of the temple and he said unto him if you are the son of god then cast yourself down from here for it is written that he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone and jesus answering said unto him it is said that you shall not tempt uh, the lord your god And so now the third temptation that that Satan brings, he comes to Jesus and he misquotes scripture. It's Psalm chapter 91 verses 11 and 12 and he leaves out a very important part of it. He says it is written that he will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against a stone. But if you read the actual verse, it says in verse 11 that he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Satan left that out. Now, the ways that Jesus was walking in were the ways that were prescribed by the Father. And anytime a person seeks to walk in God's ways, the outcome of that is that God's going to protect those ways. That's a promise of God. He's going to enlarge your steps under your feet. He's not going to cause you to slip or to stumble if you're walking in his ways, and he'll do whatever he's got to do to protect you. If you walk outside of those ways, then you've removed yourself from the place where God will protect you. And so Satan in his quotation of scripture is that he is misquoting and misapplying and he's moving Jesus if Jesus succumbs from a place of faith to a place of presumption, from a place of trusting God to a place of tempting God. And what's the temptation? Here, manifest your glory now. Don't wait, jump off the building and let everybody see it and everybody will know that you're the Messiah. That wasn't the way in the plan of God. That wasn't the way that his glory was to be manifested to Israel. The glory would be manifested in a much more powerful way uh, later on. In fact, we haven't even seen it yet. The day will come when he will ride on a white horse. His vesture dipped in blood on his thigh is written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our faith is not in the promise of God as much as it stands to be in the God who makes the promise. When we put our faith in the promise of God but try to divorce that promise from the ways and the personality of the God who made the promise, we're in danger of falling into an arena of presumption. The Bible says that God heals. That's what the Bible says. In fact, God calls his name, I am the Lord who heals you. And so we take it as a promise that God heals us. But what we do is we divorce that promise from his person and we claim it. And we say, well, God, you said that you're my healer. And so I claim that promise and you're going to heal me. And so we stop taking our insulin or we stop taking the antibiotics or the chemotherapy because we're just going to walk by faith and trust that God is going to heal us. But what you're doing is you're subtracting his per person and his character and his purpose from what he said. Maybe he's using the sicknesses that we're going through right now in order to shape something in us for our future and that it's actually his will that we're going through those things. Or maybe it's his will to heal us by the use of those things that have been made available to us in the medical industry. Who knows the whys of God? It's none of our business to know the whys of God. It's our business to trust the person of God and to leave the outcome of all of those other things in His hand. And thus, the temptation to move in presumption and to do something out of step with God is the temptation that Jesus here beats. And there had to be obedience in the what of what's done so that He is represented in what is seen as well as in the motive that's behind it. And so we see Jesus uh, here defeating this um, time of temptation that was faced by Satan. It says um, in verse 12, or verse 13, it says that when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And it says that Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And it says that he taught in their synagogues, um, being glorified of all. Jesus beat the devil in two ways. Number one, he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, he used the word of God as his tool. He didn't bind him. He didn't sing praise songs. He didn't cast Satan out. All he did is say, it is written. And he allowed the power of the word being worked through the experience of his life rise him above the temptations that were being made. It wasn't that Jesus said the words and Satan went, ah. got me you you quoted the right verse No, no 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 it wasn't the words it was the truth and the truth of those things was so real in his life that he couldn't be moved away from the path that was laid out before him and what that tells you and i is how important it is that we have a working knowledge of god's word that it not just be that we know it and can quote it or that we can find the verse but it's been so worked into the fiber and fabric of our lives and who we are that it becomes the response that we have towards the things that we interact with within this life. And we see that happening um, with Jesus here. And so the worship team can come. Before Jesus was released into um, ministry, he had to pass these tests and he did it. Um, And and so uh, Jesus now set forward. He's approved by God and sent forth into the ministry. And as we pick up next time, we're going to see Jesus now brought into the public eye as he will officially begin his uh, ministry. And so Jesus teaches us how to navigate through the temptations that we face within this world. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word that you've given. And we ask, Lord, that as we we take in, Lord, now these things and let them settle in us, we pray, Father, that you would cause them to um, teach us and continually teach us. And Lord, we ask that you would guard us, Lord, as we continue to follow and seek you, Lord, that you would be our strength against temptation and trial. And Lord, we just thank you so much that you laid these things out for us. So may you strengthen us now, and that we would go forth in the power of your might. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.